Uh, thank you all for coming this evening. My name is Alex Mondo, and uh, I'm the community ambassador here at the Collective Seattle. So I just want to uh, give you a little bit of overview of what's going on here, and then uh, we'll roll into the program. So the Collective Seattle is uh, a social club. It's a place to connect, uh, explore new ideas, uh, meet new friends, get some work done, sneak in a rock climb, maybe grab lunch or a beverage in the evening. We host a pretty wide variety of events every week. We're about six months in and have about 1,200 members. So if you're curious about having a place to play, a base camp in South Lake Union, uh, drop downstairs anytime uh, or, or come on in and let us know that you're interested in taking a tour and we'd love to have you. Um, this town hall series for us has been just an incredible opportunity to explore some big ideas with you all. And um, tonight is one that I'm super enthusiastic about. Um, John Perkins, who's one of the panelists, uh, is someone that I met a while back at business school where this was my entrepreneurship project. So uh, it is kind of full circle to have uh, folks like him presenting ideas up here. So thank you and enjoy. And Edward, here you go. Thank you so much. Uh, it's been really a pleasure to be working with uh, the collective as one of our hub venues while Town Hall has been closed for the last year and a half. Although I am very happy to report to this audience that our building is on track to reopen early next year in March. Um, <laughs> Uh, we hope that we'll stay friends with the collective and continue to uh, be a, a space and a community that can host these ideas. Uh, but really quickly, an overview of what we're going to see tonight. So my name is Edward Wolcher. I'm the curator of lectures at Town Hall Seattle. Uh, this event is presented by Town Hall along with the collective and our partners at Third Place Books, who are set up in the lobby uh, as you came in, selling books. And uh, what you're going to see tonight is something pretty special. We're going to open up with a presentation on this fascinating book, The Myth of Capitalism. And we'll see exactly what the implications of that title are. I think uh, those of you in the room might fall on a couple different sides of what it means to talk about a myth of capitalism. Uh, the presentations will be from both authors of the book, uh, Denise Hearn and Jonathan Tepper, uh, and uh, that will be followed by a panel discussion with a really amazing panel. I'll be up when we start the panel discussion to introduce them. So opening up with our uh, first speakers. Denise Hearn, who you'll hear from first, is head of business development at Variant Perception, a global macroeconomic research and investment strategy firm. She has built new impact investment models in Canada, presented to over 50,000 people while designing nationwide educational curriculum, and helped creators create the world's first trust mark for sharing economy companies in the UK. Her co-author is Jonathan Tepper, also a founder of Variant Perception, a macroeconomic research group that caters to asset managers. Previously, he worked as an equity analyst at SAC Capital and as a vice president in proprietary trading at Bank of America. He is the co-author previously of Endgame, The End of Debt, Supercycle, and Code Red. But they're here tonight to talk about this very provocatively titled and hopefully very provocative uh, new book, The Myth of Capitalism, Monopolies and the Death of Competition. Please join me in welcoming Jonathan Tepper and Denise Hearn. We live in a time where 71% uh, of Americans say that they believe the economy is rigged. And when we go back to the 2016 elections, I personally found it very fascinating that you had two candidates that couldn't agree on anything. You had Trump and you had Bernie Sanders, and yet they both found uh, incredible support with their bases by saying that the economy was rigged. We also live in a time where 81% of Americans say that they would struggle to pay a $1,000 surprise expense in their life. So this is a really palpable 
and emotional question for people about the systems that we're building and about our political and economic systems, whether they are working for the majority, whether they're not, and what we desire to see in the future. So this is an important question for people and it's an important question to me. Um, I had been doing some work in Canada on economic inequality, I'm Canadian originally, and was really interested in trying to understand the fundamental and structural drivers of inequality because it felt like oftentimes we were talking about symptoms. We were talking about CEO pay, um, we were talking about you know, the, the Occupy movement, and yet I felt as though I didn't have an understanding of what structurally was causing this inequality because inequality is a symptom, it's not the actual disease. And at the same time, so I started working with variant perception with my colleague Jonathan, who I hope is in the room um, right still. Yeah, oh, there you are. Okay, perfect. Um, so I so I started working with variant, which, as mentioned, caters to hedge funds and the world's you know family top family offices and and helps them figure out how they should invest their money. And we would go around to these Wall Street firms and we use leading indicators. So we, we try to um, use you know, unrevised leading data that gives you a sense for where the economy is going. And one of those particular indicators was this one, which is our leading indicator for US wages. And as you can see, that, that red line is, is the indicator. And generally, it gives you about an, a 15-month lead on where wages should be going. And so we would go around to our clients and we said, OK, clearly that's pointing up. You know, we're at all-time uh, highs in corporate profits. And we also have record low unemployment. Clearly, wages are going to start to rise. And yet, as you can see, the divergence kept you know, kept diverging and wages didn't keep up and wages kept stagnating. And so this was one of several relationships where long-standing economic relationships that had worked for decades were beginning to deteriorate. And so Jonathan and I would go around and chat to our clients, you know, and, they, and it's never fun to have your clients tell you that you're wrong, but in this case, they were right. And, uh, and so it set us on this path of trying to investigate what is going on here. There has to be something structural that's causing this divergence. And so, um, oh, so what I was going to say as well is that what we, what we started to do is we read hundreds of academic papers, we read articles, and we started to come upon this theory that was pretty compelling, which is not so much that capitalism is dead, but that capitalism itself in today's economy is a myth. And what we mean by that is that the competitive marketplaces that we often envisage and, and claim uh, to be true for capitalism are not true in today's economy. So let me tell you, let me walk you through my day to, to give you a sense for what that means. So my phone alarm goes off in the mornings and, uh, and I have an Apple phone and Apple and Samsung account for about 70% of all US smartphone sales. But, you know, I'm an individual. I've personalized it with a, with a case that I ordered from Amazon. And, um, and Amazon controls over, uh, or they captured 44% of all US e-commerce last year. For breakfast, I have some cereal and, uh, from Kellogg's, which together with General Mills and Post controls 85% of the cereal market in the US. I put on some fruit from Safeway and uh, it was grown with pesticides and after two mergers this year, three companies will control 70% of the world's pesticides market. 
But, you know, I'm environmentally conscious, and so uh, I, I brush my teeth with Tom's of Maine, which is actually owned by uh, Colgate Palmolive, which is a uh, multi-billion dollar conglomerate. And similarly, Burt's Bees is owned by the Clorox company, and Naked Juices is owned by PepsiCo. Two companies control 90% of the beer that Americans drink, five banks control half of the nation's banking assets, and 75% of households in the U.S. Who, that have high-speed internet are serviced by one provider. And we could go on, but in industry after industry, this is true. And the word for this is industrial concentration or industry concentration. And, um, you know, we could bore you with all the academic studies, but there is one incredible one uh, by a, a professor at, at Rice University, and he found that in the last 20 years, 75% of industries in America have become more concentrated. So this is very problematic uh, for a multitude of re reasons, which we'll get into, but I just wanted to visually help you understand what this looks like. And so here are railroads as an example. This shows railroad mergers since the 1960s. So you can see that we had you know, numerous railroads operating. Now we're down to four. Airlines, it's the same thing. And this, by the way, also with airlines, it seems like, oh, there's five competitors. You know, that sounds like quite a few. Well, actually what they do is they divide the country regionally. And so if you're flying out of Houston, you only have one choice. If you're flying out of Dallas, you have to choose Delta, uh, you know, and, and they operate fortress hubs. So they actually operate local monopolies, which is why you got a situation where United can physically beat up and drag a customer off of its airline, and the company ends up finishing the year better than it had started uh, because investors know that they have no competition and consumers have no choice in terms of which airline they have to book with when they're going to specific locations. This last chart here, banking, this is your too big to fail. Yeah, ooh, oh yes, getting into it. Um, it is, yeah. So, so that's where we're left today. And we are now in a second gilded age. So there was a time where we had companies like U.S. Steel uh, and we had the Vanderbilts and, um, and, and these you know, huge Standard Oil, these companies that controlled entire industries. Well, the same is true today. And in many ways, it's actually worse than it was before because it's not a few industries. It's across the board from birth to death, whether it's hospitals or funeral services. These industries have become so concentrated that the American consumer has very little choice as to where they spend their dollars, and every day they transfer a little bit of their paycheck to monopolists and oligopolists. And um, there's many reasons for why we got here. I'll just mention quickly two, and then I'm going to hand over to Jonathan, my, my uh, co-author, to, to take it from here. But um, back in the 1980s, Reagan deregulated and he changed the merger guidelines, and there was this new there was this new um, sort of zeitgeist that took hold, which was that mergers could be allowed as long as they reduced prices for consumers. And so as long as a company could prove that you were going to pay less for whatever good or service they were offering, the merger was allowed. And, uh, and this, you know, super, so this sort of put consumer the consumer over and above any suppliers, over workers. And this is why every decade we've had a, had a new merger wave, each one bigger than the last. 
Um, the other thing that's happened simultaneously is that um, workers at the same time have seen a dramatic decline in their bargaining power and in their organization. So there was a time in the 1980s that one in five Americans was part of a union. Now that's closer to one in 10. And private sector workers, only 6% of them are unionized. So you've seen a decline in a worker's ability to organize at the same time as this massive concentration on the corporate side. And that's where we get this divergence. So Jonathan, do you want to come up and sure. take it from here? Sure. Okay, great. Thank you. Uh, thanks to everyone for coming. Denise is brilliant with slides. I'm less so, so I'm, I'm just going to talk. Um, but so the the book really started out as uh, essentially trying to find the answer to a question, which is the the wage chart. Uh, we don't really have an axe to grind. I'm not an antitrust economist. Um, I'm not an antitrust legal scholar. But the route that we ended up going down was the uh, looking at industrial concentration. And what became very clear uh, is, and actually, if you take the wage chart and you just flip it around, because the wage bill is the biggest part of spending if you're a, a company, it actually leads return on equity and corporate profits very well. And so I thought, if, we can, if I can figure this one out, then I'm going to understand whether you know, corporate profits are uh, structurally higher than they should be, or if this is just a cyclical thing. And as an investor, should you be paying higher multiples? So I thought this is the most important question as an investment analyst that you could find. And so that's why I thought it was worth spending some time on. And the, the more uh, research and reading I did, I realized that this explained an enormous amount of uh, different questions that people had. You know, Larry Summers talks about uh, a secular stagnation, which he took from uh, Alvin Hansen in the 1930s, and as, as if somehow there's a sort of unexplained force that we don't know that's operating on the economy, just leading to the sort of general slowdown and to greater inequality and all these problems. And what was very interesting was um, Denise was just touching on the, what's known as the consumer welfare standard, meaning that you can merge as much as you like if you're creating greater efficiencies and you're then passing these on to the consumer. Uh, the first thing that we found out was that's total bullshit. Um, and it's very well-paid bullshit uh, because all the economists who you know, work on these mergers, uh, Charles Rivers Associates, you have uh, Compass Lexicon, um, you know, and then the K Street law firms in DC, uh, get very, very well paid to do it. Um, but you know, there's loads of research that's been coming out over the last five to 10 years showing that actually in, all, in almost all cases where you end up with highly concentrated industries or less than six players, you end up with price increases, right? So I don't know if anyone's ever uh, had a hospital bill or insurance, uh, you know, if, do you feel prices have gone down, right? Um, pharma, I don't know if any of you feel that your medicine prices have gone down, right? Um, your local cable bills, I don't know if you're satisfied with those. Right, and so, and the funny thing is, as we go about, you know, uh, traveling around the country, going to uh, events like this, people are like, oh yeah, well, let me tell you about my industry, right? You know, 90% of urban hospital markets are highly concentrated, right? You have no choice, right? Um, if, if you have a problem, um, and it just goes industry after industry, particularly if you go to the agricultural heartland. So broadly, it's not brought lower prices; it's brought higher prices in concentrated industries. But then you find that it actually has other impacts, which is it impacts. Uh, productivity, right? We're seeing a complete collapse in small firms. Believe it or not, you know, and loads of people here in Seattle and like San Francisco, it's a, it's a tech place. People think of IPOs, right? Half of all public companies have disappeared over the last 20 years, right? In, in terms of the number of stocks that trade on the NYSC and the exchanges, right? 
that would be a disaster if you thought it was a proxy for the U.S. economy, right? Um, and if you look at, for example, the startup rate, um, th that's collapsed across all industries, including high tech. And there were quite a few years uh, over the last five years where there were more firm deaths than there were firm entries, right? Um, if that were happening in this room biologically, we would be deeply concerned about the future of the human race. Um, but that's what's happening to the economy. Um, then you have essentially uh, problems with workers, right, which is the original chart Denise showed. Why is it that workers aren't really getting w uh, raises, right? What you've seen is essentially a collapse in unionization, which is sort of a multi-decade affair. And at the same time, you've seen an increase in concentration, right? So companies get more concentrated and more powerful, and workers uh, get less concentrated and more dispersed. And at the same time, what happens is uh, you get 20% of all Americans are covered by non-compete agreements, right? Which is, and, and so think of the irony, right? Uh, many of you work in companies where you can be hired and fired at will, right? So they have essentially the call on you, and you don't have a call on yourself, meaning you can't go to work for someone else because, you know, in many cases, there are these non-competes. So a monopoly is where there's one seller, right? So your local cable company sells you cable services. Um, a monopsony in economics is where there's one buyer, right? So Amazon's the one buyer for books. Right? You could have five publishers, but Amazon's the one buyer for books. But in, in many places, essentially, for what your chosen profession is, there's sort of one or very few buyers for your talent and for your wages. And this helps explain why, particularly in rural America, you know, and places that are like, you know, big cities tend to offer more choices, but you have very little to, to, to go on if you're a nurse, you know, if you're a telecoms technician, or whatever it might be, you've got a, monop a monopolist. And the, the problem that we also write about in the book is that, you know, Americans are trained instinctively to dislike monopolies. We think they're bad generally. We you know, have a history of Teddy Roosevelt busting up trust. But, you know, when you look at these, you have duopolies, right, in terms of the beer market Denise was talking about. Uh, you have it in rating agencies and loads of other things. But then you have oligopolies. And unfortunately, the problem is once you get very down to very few players, they can collude. And they don't even have to talk to each other to collude. Um, you know, game theory tells you if you play repeated games that you're going to end up cooperating. That's sort of the optimal outcome, right? You don't want to get into a price war. You don't really want to get into a big fight. And so investors, you know, if, if anyone here um, reads research reports from Wall Street, they talk about these as rational oligopolies, right? And what, what does rational oligopoly mean? It means that they don't compete, right? And that's what people look for. So um, noted investors like Warren Buffett, I mean, if you look through his portfolio and do that for the last 30 years, he has owned pretty much every monopoly, duopoly, or local monopoly in the U.S., right? It's a very smart guy. I have tremendous admiration for him. Um, he figured it, this out long before I did. Um, but that's sort of how he gets wealthy. And the medieval term, uh, robber baron, was then applied in the U.S. in the late 19th century uh, because back then, if you were crossing through a nobleman's lands, you would pay a toll for using his roads, Right? Um, and so this was a very effective way for the peasants to, send, to give money to the nobleman, even if he didn't keep your road up and keep it going. And so in a way, what, this is a, uh, industrial concentration creates more inequality because what it's doing is it's a very effective means of regressive taxation, of transferring money from people who don't have shares uh, to people who do. And unfortunately, the wealthiest Americans do have the most. So even though everything I'm telling you is uh, dire, 
um, there actually is hope, and uh, the, the truth. And we can we can talk about sort of uh, proposals for for change and uh, and improvements. But I don't think that uh, capitalism itself is is not the problem. The problem essentially is this sort of uh, grotesque um, version, and uh, Stiglitz calls it ersatz capitalism. Sort of it looks like capitalism, and it's not. And so. Uh, communism defined itself in opposition to private property. Um, so private property essentially is one of the key elements of, of capitalism, and uh, communism had collective property. So that was won in 1989, the Berlin Wall fell. The, the other part of capitalism is competition, right? And the reason competition is important is because, you know, w what's the right amount of corn that should be supplied in a given year, right? Or whatever the commodity might be. Uh, you need competition to have supply and demand figure out what that is, and it does it much better than any centrally planned uh, economy. And so, unfortunately, what's happening right now is um, that you know we're seeing very little competition. After we finish the book, and I'll close on this, um, is basically uh, I, we, we, I picked the name "Mythic Capitalism" because I thought this is this is it. This is the idea of the book, right? Like the thing that, pe that everyone's complaining about capitalism, like it's a myth, right? That is not capitalism that we're seeing because there's not much competition. So I finished writing it, and then I ran across this great quote by a Polish economist, um, Michał Kalecki, and he did some great work on national accounting and statistics, and you know, uh, great, even though he's a neo-Marxist, I have great admiration for a lot of the work that he did in terms of understanding how the different sectors in the economy relate to each other. And he said, the idea of perfect competition may be useful as a starting point in, in capitalism, but ultimately it tends towards monopoly. And we can say that competition in capitalism is ultimately a myth. And I was thinking, one, this is not true, uh, but uh, Buffett and Peter Thiel, who wrote a book praising monopolies and others, are doing their damnedest to prove the neo-Marxist right. And uh, I think that ultimately what we have to do is to reform it. Um, one of that is obviously to prevent future mergers that create less competition. Two, break up previous mergers that have uh, reduced competition. And then another one, which we didn't really touch on tonight, but is like regulation now serves the regulated, meaning there's regulatory capture. Uh, Glass-Steagall, believe it or not, was 35 pages. Dodd-Frank is 2,200 pages, with thousands more pages delegated to rule writing committees. And we've seen less than a handful of ba new banks started since the financial crisis, right? Regulation essentially chokes uh, the economy and creates greater co concentration. So the answer isn't necessarily more regulation and stronger regulators because the FTC is captured by the parties that merge. Google pretty much owns the FTC at this stage. You know, um, They're phenomenal at lobbying. I have only the utmost uh, regard for Google's wisdom in lobbying. Um, they do it far better than any other company. But, you know, so the, the answer isn't necessarily more regulation and more regulators, right? What we need is more competition and having an, a, a thoughtful way of doing that. So thank you so much for coming tonight, and I hope, I'm really looking forward to the discussion. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a, an honor to meet the fellow guests. So uh, thank you. There are four panelists coming to the stage who are some of the um, voices that I am most excited to hear respond to what we just heard and doing some of the best work thinking about a fair and just economy in our society right now. Uh, first, we have Nick Hanauer. Nick is a venture capitalist and political activist who has worked for over 30 companies as a founder, manager, and financier since 1982, including one, uh, uh, and serves on the board of many public and private institutions. He is the founder of Civic Ventures and has served as the director for the Democracy Alliance. He also has a new podcast la uh, launching next week called Pitchfork economics, and uh, you can imagine what those pitchforks are and who they're coming for a little bit. Um, 
Also on our panel tonight is Rachel Lutter. Rachel is the new executive director of Working Washington and the Fair Work Center, two Seattle-based workers' rights organizations aligning to become a one-stop shop for low-wage low worker organizing, advocacy, education, outreach, and legal services. Uh, also on our panel tonight is Nicole Viestro keenan Lai, who is the executive director of Puget Sound SAGE, my favorite uh, uh, Seattle-based uh, uh, policy organization. Uh, formerly, Nicole was also the executive director and founder of the Fair Work Center. Her uh, work has been featured in the New York Times, the BBC, The Guardian, and Huffington Post, among other outlets, uh, with 15 years of experience as an organizer co-creating and passing more equitable policies and practices. Uh, and finally, on our panel tonight is John Perkins. John is the chief economist at a major international consulting firm and has advised the World Bank, United Nations, IMF, U.S. Treasury Department, Fortune 500 corporations, and leaders of countries in Africa, Asia, Latin America, and the Middle East. He is also the author of a little book you may have heard of called The New Confessions of an Economic Hitman. Please join me in welcoming our panel to the stage. I, I guess I'd like to start with just, does anyone want to sort of respond generally to, uh, to the presentation and offer your thoughts? And then I will have some more pointed questions after this. But does anyone have any initial response or thoughts? Hi, <clears throat> I'm John Perkins. And uh, thank you guys so very, very much. It's an amazing book. It's a, it's, a, it's a page turner, and it's such an important book. And I hope everybody here who doesn't already have one, buys one tonight. I, that's, I, I'm tr truly, I wasn't paid to say that. I was going to say, we did not pay him. <laughs> and one of the most important things, I think, is the way that it discusses capitalism, which I think is, is really important, how capitalism's not evil in your book, this, this current form of it, evil. I think we need to look, you, you mentioned, Denise, that uh, the problems are not symptoms I mean, they are symptoms. The problems are symptoms. They're not, they're not the, the disease. They're symptoms. And I think we really need to look at what's behind all of that. And to me, the driving force happened in one particular moment in history, 1976. I was a business student before that. And I was taught that businesses should be good citizens as well as make a decent rate of return for investors. In 76, Milton Friedman won the Nobel Prize. And although he was a free marketeer, and I like him for that, his most important statement probably was that the only responsibility of business is to uh, maximize short-term profits regardless of the social and environmental costs. That's the disease, I think. And I think the way we're going to change this whole thing is that all of us have to buy into a different philosophy. That's only a perception, but it's created a reality. Perceptions create realities. And the perception that the only responsibility of business is to maximize short-term profits regardless of social and environmental costs is, is sick. And it's what's caused these problems. But it's, we've, all, we've all kind of bought into it. So in a way, we all have to look at what is the long-term, you know, let's not worry about what the Seahawks are doing in their next game. <laughs> let's worry about the value of football. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm from New England. <laughs> but I live here now, <laughs> so I'm for the Seahawks. But let's not look at, you know, what's the stock market's doing today? What's behind all of this? We need to continually look at the long term. And businesses need to pay decent rate of return to investors who invest in creating an economy that benefits all. And I think we need, so it's a perceptual change. How do we create the change? Mm -hmm. That's the question. And we need to bring a new perception. And thank you. 
reception? Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so I wanted, one of the things that really came up for me during your talk was um, the fact that the price elasticity of gasoline is zero, or almost zero. Um, and so what that means specifically is that no matter what price gas is, people buy the same amount of gas. Um, and the reason I believe we have that is because our infrastructure was built to make us 100% reliant on fossil fuels. And so, oh, that's okay. And so, um, if we want to have a planet and a future, we have to start thinking about well, how do we uh, create competition in that area as well? How do we invest more in clean energy? How do we build ourselves up and prepare for a just transition? And I do agree that having competition in our energy markets um, is a way that we get there. And I say this because Puget Sound Sage was heavily involved in the writing and and then subsequent failure of 1631. Um, but, you know, I think that's a really important factor. And over the last few years of both writing policy and then implementing it, uh, one of the main things that I've come to realize is that we can have esoteric or theoretical conversations about what it means for our economy to work, but when it comes down to it, it's about how we interact with each other. Um, and how do we value the people that we interact with, and how do we value their occupation and their work? Um, and I think it becomes really easy when, and I, I used to work for Accenture, so I have to say I came from the corporate world at some point, it becomes really easy to manipulate people's lives when you're looking at it in a chart. When you're saying, oh, well, if I just need to get this line item to zero, then if I delete a little here and add a little here, uh, it becomes very easy to make decisions to reduce wages for the sake of profit. Um, and so as one of those cogs, or former cogs in a wheel, um, I also think that it's about the normalization of certain types of behavior that we all buy into. Um, and so it's both at the individual and the community level that we have the opportunity to make change and plant seeds for the structural change down the road. So I've seen it happen, just a little seed planted of an idea turned into a law that increased wages for 21 million people across the country, and we did that work together. So I know it's possible. Uh, we have been in worse situations before as a country. We have pulled ourselves out of those situations, and we did that by being less greedy, more honest, more authentic, and figuring out policies that are gonna work for everyone when we made the first New Deal. And now it's time for a Green New Deal. So, thank you. <laughs> I'll just, I'm Rachel Lauder. I'm the new executive director of Working Washington in the Fair Work Center. And I'll just add on to what Nicole said and really sort of center workers in this conversation. And just a few quick observations, and I'm sure we'll get into more detail. But, um, you know, the, at the end of the chapter uh, of your book that talks about workers, um, it's pretty grim. You basically say unions are screwed and we just need better unions, we need more unions. And um, that resonated with me because I think that the laws in place and the courts, that, you know, the current court structure that we have are sort of stacked against unions, but just a few observations. First, uh, unions are very popular and actually union density in Washington state is on the rise. And then just insert shameless plug here, there are lots of folks talking about new models of worker power, specifically my organization, Working Washington in the Fair Work Center, where we're thinking about how you do, how you represent low-wage workers across industries. So not the sort of traditional enterprise collective bargaining, but being able to raise standards and advocate for laws that um, impact workers across 
industries. So Nicole mentioned you know, the fight for 15 and the increase in the minimum wage. In Seattle and Washington, we've done some great worker justice work um, to raise the minimum standards. And now we're really thinking about some of the stuff that's impacted by corporate consolidation. So there's a real possibility in Washington state this year that will pass a, a, a ban on non-compete clauses. Um, there's a building movement to work um, around uh, forced arbitration laws and sort of figure out sort of creative ways to litigate and enforce workers' rights um, as an end run around forced ARB. And then also... Can you, can you explain those terms for people unfamiliar? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, um, so then, I mean, the non-compete clauses, uh, you know, I think most people know, which is basically that you're not, you, if you're not going to be able to take a new job um, in an industry that, or even there's like, they can be very, very specific where it's basically like, uh, they can be very broad and very specific, but essentially when you leave employment, not being able to take another job in that sort of the area where you worked. And this was clearly designed, to, uh, or this was initially designed or the, or the Justification was uh, trade secrets, protection of trade secrets, but really it's just been a way for workers to limit mobility. Forced arbitration, um, a huge number of people uh, in your employment contracts, basically if you have an issue with your employer, it will, will require you to go to arbitration. Um, and there's, this is pretty complicated stuff, but um, even most recently in a Supreme Court decision called Epic Systems, um, the Supreme Court held that um, it can be required as a condition of your employment to force you into individual forced arbitration. And what this means is that it limits workers to really, um, to, to sue their employers if they're aggrieved, but also to do it collectively. And that really limits worker power. Um, but there's some interesting policy solutions at the state level um, that would basically allow indi individuals or groups of individual workers to sue their employers on behalf of the state um, to recover damages. Um, so I, I say a lot of this. Oh, and then also our attorney general, Bob Ferguson, um, has just done some really great work about no-poach agreements. I don't know if people know what those are, but uh, a no-poach agreement is essentially a, a ban on an individual worker from, getting a, from uh, being hired um, if, you're, if you work at a company that has franchise ownership um, and you want to take a job at a different franchise that a no-poach agreement would bar you from doing that. So it limits mobility internally from in brands. So if you work at one McDonald's and you've got a lot of training and you're ready to be the manager of another McDonald's, you'd be banned from doing so. Um, and clearly that's, um, there's been lots of good legal challenges um, on, based on antitrust law to prevent it. And, but, and just, to, just to jump in, yeah, one quarter of fast food workers are under those no-poach agreements in, in America. Um, so it's not just sort of a niche issue. It, clearly is something that has, is, you know, has widely spread but is increasingly under scrutiny and thankfully under increasing uh, regulation. I think Bob ended that. Yeah, right, exactly. So our yeah, attorney, our, our yeah, attorney so general Bob, yes, exactly. crushed yeah. that. <laughs> right. So that's just all to say that there's actually some interesting stuff and a little bit of glimmer of hope, both from a worker mobilization perspective and also just changing laws. And clearly this is a state-by-state -state, um, strategy, but because we don't have a great federal government partner in this work right now, but uh, you know, I, I see a little I see a little bit of hope. And then the two other quick observations about worker power um, or workers. First is that the consumer issues related to um, the consolidation of corporations is also a worker issue. Um, Denise, you mentioned that you know it's increasingly hard to just afford the basics um, and. People are just experiencing this all across the country, and that clearly has to do also with just the cost of the things that people need to live their lives. 
Um, and then the third thing I would say about sort of worker organizing and mobilizing against this work is that corporate consolidation ha uh, creates a funny dynamic, which is that it's both, um, it's both easier to agitate against that, like there's an easy target, there's an easy message, like big, mean corporation, um, but it's also harder to gain wins um, through, or through organizing. Um, I think we can see that in Amazon. I think you can see that, I mean, I think Google Walkout, the Google Walkout is a really good example of this, where, I mean, that was so popular and everyone was really, really excited about it. And they actually did get a little bit of a win, but they got Google to agree to um, end forced arbitration, but just for sex harassment claims. And you still have to bring your sexual harassment claim individually. You can't do any collective work. Um, so there was all this national excitement about this and it seemed like there was so much momentum, but it's harder to get major wins. And I, I, I just wanted to sort of underscore and add more uh, depth um, to the point about Milton Friedman, which I think is a, is a good one, but, it, but I think it's, it's far more complicated than that because, so let me first start by saying that I substantially agree with the thesis of your book that corporate concentration is an evil that we need to, that we need to work hard assiduously to try to defeat. But the cause, but, but human societies are, are constructs based on explanations and narratives that are sort of collectively accepted by the society. And in a commercial society, the economic theory that people uh, subscribe to is the main narrative. And it, it, what Milton Friedman said is actually worse than what, what you described. He didn't just say the only purpose of the corporation is to enrich shareholders because that's all we should do. He, he made a deeper claim, which was that that is the way to maximize social utility. That the whole world will be better off if all executives do is maximize profits for shareholders. And that idea, in turn, is, is a consequence, is a direct consequence, flows directly from the neoclassical economic models that he and other people pioneered. That, and, and neoclassical economics, and which is which is an abstract academic layer, sort of the bottom of the stack of ideas that we that we sort of use to organize our thinking. Um, on top of that is neoliberalism, which is essentially a, a bunch of social and um, ideological ideas that we accept both consciously and unconsciously, like the only purpose of the corporation is to enrich shareholders, and by so doing, we maximize the benefits for, every, for everybody, right? Uh, it includes ideas like the only, uh, that, 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 the, that there is always a trade-off between increasing amounts of fairness or justice in a society and economic growth, that the only reasonable way to organize a society is to use competition, uh, that the only de legitimate definition of freedom is freedom from constraint. There are a bunch of ideas that are embedded in our culture that flow directly from neoclassical economics that inevitably lead to corporate concentration because if you accept those underlying ideas, if you accept, for instance, that economies are in equilibrium, then the principle of marginal productivity, which is that people are paid what they're worth, has to be true. It's just, it's just that the, the economy isn't in equilibrium. It's a non-equilibrium system. And so the principle of marginal productivity cannot be true. But, but 
all, I mean, the, the challenge, of course, is that we both need to attack corporate concentration, which is sort of the high level, you know, high order bit. But there is, a, there are decades of work left to tear down all of those old ideas that frame our understanding of where prosperity comes from, what it is, how markets work, what our role is in it, uh, to build a society that works better for everybody. It's a complicated, it will be a long journey. May I? Sure, yeah. Um, I love that you said that because I was, I was recalling this anecdote. So I'm actually a social worker, that's my profession. Um, originally. And the reason I went into that work was because I wanted a society where everyone thrived, where people were happy, where people had families that they loved, where people had clean air and a happy place to live. And uh, I took this class at the business school um, on how to be on the board of a nonprofit, uh, which was amazing to me because the way they taught um, what your purpose is on being on a board of a nonprofit is to help make the nonprofit efficient. And I raised my hand and asked, well, but what if part of the mission isn't related to efficiency? And they were like, I can't imagine a world in which that is true. <laughs> and I was like, I can imagine many worlds having worked 15 in non years in nonprofits where efficiency is definitely not our top goal. Uh, our top goal is making sure that the people we serve are happy and healthy and have the things they need. And so when I think about um, how we structure our business negotiations, our business operations, even the people we bring together to craft policy, we need to set a framework of the main goal is to make sure that people are thriving and happy um, and what that looks like can be determined together um, as opposed to drilling in one value alone about efficiency because you know you can get from A to B really efficiently but um, if you're sprinting it's not a very enjoyable time so I, I think I agree agree greatly with Nick in that um, where we need to go is simultaneously changing policy changing how we interact together um, but also thinking about our fundamental belief systems about what value efficiency brings in addition to the other things we might value and want. Great, thank you. Um, okay, I'd like to bring this I'd like to bring this to a local level. And uh, we obviously sit here in Seattle with Amazon looming over uh, over the environment. Um, in Columbia City, there is even Kill Bezos graffiti in my neighborhood, um, and and so we we live in in an, a city that has both benefited greatly from this this innovator uh, and also has has potentially suffered at the hands of Amazon. But what I would like to um, do is ask both Jonathan, what uh, you are an entrepreneur and what effect you think concentration has on entrepreneurs and innovators. And then I also would like to ask your perspective, as Nick is one of the uh, first non-family investors in Amazon, and sort of get your perspective specifically on, on that company and um, what you think might be done on the Amazon side. Uh, sure. So uh, broadly, industrial concentration tends to be bad for innovators. Uh, partly uh, that's due to one, uh, crony capitalism or regulatory capture, i.e. dominant firms are able to influence regulation to their favor. Uh, we have a chapter in regulation in the book and it points out that regulation is very much like chemotherapy. Chemotherapy kills healthy cells and cancerous cells, not just the cancerous cells. 
Um, but uh, healthy cells essentially have stopped growing, and, and they're just like focused on cell repair. And so, you know, big companies have armies of lawyers, compliance, accountants, all that. Um, startups don't have that. And so the more you then layer on specific laws or regulations, you can then uh, sort of choke them out. And that's very much what we've seen in the U.S. But also what generally happens, uh, particularly in the tech space, is that the startups, in a way, depend on the infrastructure of the larger firms. That's sort of what's ended up happening. And they can sort of, uh, you know, choke them. If you think of, like, Google, basically, uh, you know, they were downloading hundreds of thousands of images per hour from Yelp, right? So other companies spend their time creating content, and then the dominant platforms essentially can appropriate that. In the case of Amazon, it's a little different, but what they basically have all the sort of SKUs, they know what's selling. They're in theory like UPS and FedEx fulfilling it and getting it to your customer, but actually they see what sells, they see what doesn't sell, they control what gets displayed on the site and so on, right? So the paradox now in uh, sort of 21st century America is that a lot of these startups depend on their very competitors in a way to be able to reach their customers. Um, and so th that's one of the things that we've seen. And then speaking to venture capitalists, uh, lots of them are telling us that they will not fund anything that remotely has to touch um, the, the, the tech giants, right? They're like, well, I might as well just go out and buy Google stock, you know, because like, if I'm going to pay you to try to reach their, the people that they control access to. Sure. And so that's not really good in the long run for an economy. Um, that's in this tech space specifically. But, it, uh, you know, industrial concentration is just terrible in, in many other areas, areas of, the, of the economy. Um. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think that if I could just, I, I'm going to answer the Amazon question, mm -hmm. but I just, I do want to underscore what you said, John, because, so prosperity in human societies is largely linked to innovation, which is how we solve human problems. And innovation in human societies isn't a eureka thing, which is sort of the canonical model that people have in our heads where, where innovation comes if somebody has an idea. This is not true. Innovation is always combinatorial. Um, it's putting things together in new ways. You had a rock, that did some stuff for you. You had a stick, you tie the rock to the stick, and all of a sudden, you have technology, right? And, and What technology is that? Well, <laughs> a rock tied to a stick? No, a lot of things. No, it's, it's, it's a hammer. It's a hammer. No, it's a hammer, it's a spear, it's an arrow, oh, yeah. it's a hoe, it's a, it's a, you know, like it's a lot of things, right? And, and, um, the rate of combinatorial dy dynamics of an evolutionary system is largely linked to how many diverse competitors you have. And the thing that kills the rate of innovation is when you have a couple of big players who don't do anything. Like new stuff is, so the more diverse, able competitors you have trying to solve whatever problem you have, the higher the rate of innovation. And so, you know, there's this crisis of productivity in the country innovation is slowing down. This has a lot to do with all this corporate concentration because all these people effectively are doing is clipping coupons, right? And, and, and this and, is... And to your, to your point, yeah. um, if you look at, for example, like the internet revolution uh, happened unsurprisingly after they broke up uh, AT&T. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a wonderful website I discovered this week called Google Cemetery. Uh, you should check it out. And it has like all the brands and products that Google has killed. Um, and part of that is that they're interested in selling ads. And so anything that it doesn't fit right. into that mission gets killed. Yeah. And so you don't have this sort of uh, right. lively ecosystem. And there's a great book, to your point, um, and it basically it talked about uh, how innovation, you basically often find multiple innovations happening at the same time. You know, yeah. like essentially um, Newton and Leibniz discovering calculus at the same time. And sort of the question is, why do you find these things? Because everyone then separately is like 
working on the same problems. Right. And that's productivity and innovation. Yeah. And when you have very few players, you're not ending up with right. people working on similar problems. Right. But anyway, I mean, to, the, to, to Amazon's point, I was the first investor in Amazon. I used to be very proud of that. <laughs> um, uh, and, um, you know, obviously we never, when we started the company, never expected it to go, uh, how, how would you put it, this well. Uh, um, and it has been a, a, a remarkable success, but it seems unambiguously true uh, that we should break it the hell up, that, that, that there's only one person in the world that benefits from Amazon being the size that it is, and that's Jeff Bezos, and everyone else is getting screwed. And, <laughs> and, uh, and, and, there's, no, and there's just no, there, there's no social utility. You know, like I, I made, I made a shit ton of money on it, and I'm happy about that. But, uh, uh, but, um, but you know, like, it, I mean, so, so, I, and I want to under, I want to come back to this, this, this idea of ideas. I, I think that capitalism is un, undoubtedly the greatest social technology ever invented to create prosperity in human societies. We don't, have, we don't have to fear capitalism. We have to fear neoliberalism, which is the ideological layer that sits on top that says things like the only purpose of the corporation is to enrich shareholders. There's nothing in bed. All capitalism is, is, is a set of social institutions and technologies that enables groups of people to come together and cooperate to solve one another's problems. And how we define the rules of those, th those interactions, how we define prosperity, Total, that, that's up to us. And, th and there is no earthly reason why you have to have a capitalist system that concentrates wealth and power in the way that we have, that we have allowed. Uh, and the reason we allowed it is we, we were sold a bunch of bad ideas about how we would all benefit from that when it just wasn't true. And that's what we have to push back on. Thank you, Nick. And, and you know, I think, think, in essence, this form of capitalism we have now that I call predatory capitalism has turned the whole system on its head. Because under capitalism, everything is owned by private entities. It's not owned by the government. And in a way, what's happened today is that the people who own the private corporations own government. So rather than government owning businesses, businesses own government today. So we've seen this complete turnaround, and it's not capitalism. We don't, we don't have capitalism right now. We have predatory capitalism, you want to call it that, ersatz capitalism, as Stiglitz calls it, fake capitalism. It's not capitalism, and let's not get confused about that. I can't tell you how many times I, I'm speaking at places and people raise their hands and say, we just got to get rid of capitalism, don't we? And I say, no, my, my, that would mean my grandson can't have his lemonade stand. You know, <laughs> The government would have to own it. Uh, let's not do that. And I think the other point being that when you say the only responsibility of business is to maximize short-term profits, as you said, it goes so far beyond that because what that does is give CEOs permission, in fact, the, the license, in fact, many would say the mandate to do whatever it takes to maximize short-term profits, including corrupting politicians now legally because they get laws passed that allow them to do it legally, and destroying the environment, destroying the very resources upon which their corporations depend. In the long run, they destroy them in the short term. It just, it gives this mandate to do whatever it takes to make short-term shareholder profits. And that's absurd. It's, it's, it's absurd. So how do we change it? That's the real question. How do we move into a new and direction? I, I think that one of the things that both of you are talking about is 
this idea that somehow there's this uh, capitalism that exists independent of the government, independent of us, uh, you know, as a society, and that it's, it was, you know, sort of untouched, you know, by government, and it's free, and it's sort of neoclassical economics, which essentially is like, you know, charts on, on paper, right? And these aggregate demand and supply curves just move effortlessly f from the left to the right. But actually, like, the economy has never existed outside, at least in, the, let's say, the Anglo-Saxon tradition, which is what we have here, outside of common law, right? It's sort of a series of uh, agreements and cases that, you know, have built, been built up over time for our own benefit. Um, and legislative acts, right? So we determine what capitalism is. Like, capitalism itself is not something other, right? And so we are responsible for that. Yeah. Yeah. Can, can I... I gave a speech in Boston a, a month ago called Homo Economicus Must Die, uh, which sort of traces how you get. The, the, who, knows, who knows what Homo Economicus is? Is that familiar at all to you? So this is what, this is what they teach you in Econ 101. It, it's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a construct, basically, that says that people are perfectly selfish and perfectly rational and that, that this describes human behavior. All of neoclassical economics depends on it. This is, the, this is the baseline assumption that drives all the economic models that all the economists in the world are presently using. So here's the thing, is that if you accept that as true, as most economists largely do, and you embed that idea into people's heads in the culture, and people assume that it is true, that people are perfectly selfish, and that this makes sense, and you let people look around the world at all of the unambiguous prosperity and goodness in it, then it has to be true, it has to be true by definition that selfishness causes prosperity. That billions of individual acts of selfishness magically transubstantiate into prosperity and the common good. And if that is true, then then it also must be true, by definition, that the only purpose of the corporation can be to enrich shareholders, right? There, there is a direct line from the baseline assumption that they are presently teaching in every economics course in every college in America to this really insidious idea about what the purpose of the corporation is. But if you recognize, as, as reasonable social scientists do today, that home economicus does not in any way characterize what people are really like, that people are evolutionarily designed to be other-regarding, reciprocal, and intuitively moral, and that, it is, and, 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 that, and that it is cooperation that is the source of our prosperity, that when you look around the world at, the, at all the prosperity in it, it's not competition and selfishness that generated that. It was working with others to create non-zero-sum outcomes to create all that prosperity, then you can't get to shareholder, you know, sh shareholder value maximization. And so these ideas about what we are, what we should expect from ourselves, what drives prosperity and creates um, goodness in the society, these are deep, lodged deep in your, in your subconscious. And that's, and I think it's, it's gonna be so hard to untangle all of that and get people to look at this stuff in a profoundly new way. The, o the only people who <clears throat> are not subject to incentives and who are not uh, sort of the homo economicus are the antitrust economists and lawyers <laughs> yeah. uh, because you know, they're not yeah. influenced by who pays them. They're just coming up with sort of true and yeah. right solutions. Exactly. Yeah. 
Um, the other thing I was just going to mention, which we talk about in the book, and Jonathan introduced this concept, which helped me uh, recognize that you know this isn't about all these nefarious actors out there necessarily, but there's something called the fallacy of composition, which means that what is what is good in part is not always good in whole. And the example is, if you think that the bank is failing, it makes perfectly logical and rational sense for you to go and get your money out because that benefits you and um, and, and your family. But the sooner that you do that and the sooner that everyone else asks, acts in their own interest, the sooner the bank becomes insolvent and it actually you know brings brings the bank down. And so what's good in part is not always good in whole. And I think um, that at least has helped me to recognize that um, when we talk about incentives, when we talk about you know, business schools teaching Porter's Five Forces and teaching, teaching uh, CEOs to build moats around their business and try to, you know, try to extricate themselves from any kind of competition, um, that, makes, that might make sense for them to be acting you know, that way in that particular part. But the irony is that uh, that ultimately you know, affects the economy, it weakens the ability for, uh, for people to actually compete and to, to pay into businesses. And so, um, so I think that, at least for me, was a, was a helpful schematic to think about it. Um, did you have? No, I was okay. Gonna... okay, perfect. Um, so how much time do we have, by the way, left? We have about 15 <laughs> minutes left, and uh, we do want to break to audience Q&A in a minute, but we have maybe time sure. for one more go round of the panel. Sure. Okay, so maybe let's end on a slightly hopeful note. Um, I, I guess I would just like to ask each of the panelists to briefly talk about, you know, what makes you optimistic? What gives you hope in this environment? Um, and where do we go from here? I'm extremely hopeful, and I think I'm, I'm, I'm blessed with the opportunity to travel around the world a lot. I just was speaking in the Czech Republic. I'm on my way to Colombia in a couple of days. I, tr I travel a great deal, and everywhere I go, I, I find that people really are waking up to the fact that there's a big problem. At the same time, you're finding Brazil, which has this terrible dictator now. We've got our problems here, ter terrible problems. There's Brexit. There's all kinds of problems. But I think that I take strength from that because I've been a martial artist most of my life. And one of the things you learn is when somebody comes at you with all this force, you know, you just turn it around and use it against them. And I think every time there's a revolution, I think we're going through a revolution in consciousness. People really are waking up. This isn't working. The oceans are rising. The glaciers are melting. The fires are, are, are burning us down. We know that. And there's a revolution in consciousness, an awakening. And whenever there's a revolution, those who are sitting and think that they gain from keeping the status quo will do everything they can to stop the revolution. But those in the revolution will take that energy and turn it back around, and that's exactly what we're doing here. That's what your book does. That's what all of us here are involved in. Most of you out there are involved in it, I suspect, in one way or another. There's a huge revolution. And my book, Confessions of an Economic Hitman, came out in 2004. For the next couple of years, I was on a constant tour speaking at a lot of universities. MBA programs and, and, and uh, law schools. And I would meet with students before or after my talk and say, what is your goal in life? And back then, they all said, we want to get rich. We want to have money and power. I kept hearing that. I don't, I'm still speaking at these universities. I don't hear that so much anymore. I hear the students say, we want more time in our lives. We want to have children. We want to raise children. I'm getting this education because I want to do better in the world. 
the reality is that many of them are, 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 are burdened with tar terrible debts. So that becomes difficult because that's part of the system, because that's this, the setback. The system's reacting to this. But the hope is that I have, that I feel everywhere I go, people are sit coming like this. You're, it's a full house here tonight. It's always a full house. Because we're all buying into the fact we must listen. We must wake up. Change has to happen. We cannot continue with an economic system, global economic system, that's consuming itself into extinction. And that's what this one is doing. It's a death economy that's eating itself into extinction. And it, to, to take care of the short term, it's destroying the long term. It can't go on. People everywhere are getting it. And so there's, I'm, I'm excited. I mean, what a time to be alive. We're a part of this amazing revolution. Yes. <laughs> I don't know if anyone can top that. that was great. Sure try. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, I'm also incredibly hopeful. Uh, you know, I've had the, the privilege of getting to live during, in America during a time in which I, as a young woman of color, have more access to anything than anyone who looked like me in the past in this country would have. I'm not as young as I look, I'll just say that. Um, and, and I also, and the things that give me hope is that I teach at the University of Washington, and sometimes we have crowds this big, and I'll take one eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper and say, tear off a piece and make sure everyone here can have one. And I guarantee every time I've done this, there is always more than enough paper at the end because people look around, they take just the little amount that they need, and they make sure that everyone else has what they need too. And, um, and I... That's what gives me hope, is that we are moving towards co-creation. More and more people want to have a meaningful say in what their future looks like. And you're seeing that particularly in the millennial workforce. And I think there's something really valuable in that, because when we have diverse opinions and we have the uh, power to actually negotiate what our future looks like, we get better laws. And I say this because I was on the 15 panel with Nick, and was one of, I think, the only one whose personal household income would have gone up because of it. <laughs> and, I, and I think that having our very different minds and uh, very different types of people come to the table to create a law, made a law that was better for small businesses, made sure that small businesses had the opportunity to transition up, but targeted those who were the biggest first. Um, and so I see all of these different ways that we are growing and evolving as people, and I'm, I'm super excited about the generation that comes right after mine. Um, I'm related to a lot of them, and um, my sisters are so much more aware of their flaws. They tell everyone about them, and I think if, if we have a society where people own what's wrong with themselves, communicate that, communicate authentically with each other, we will create the policies and the laws that allow us to co-create a better future. Things that make me hopeful are new models of worker power, um, Washington State's track record in worker justice issues, um, a crop of sexy new antitrust attorneys like Lena Khan, um, and some heightened awareness from higher earning tech workers um, about what their company's practices are um, and real opportunity for solidarity with low wage workers. Mm. So I'm hopeful. 
But I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. <laughs> I'm just being honest. Uh, but uh, so here's something to be hopeful, though, about, uh, which is that 24 months ago, the word monopsony had not been in print in 40 years. And today you cannot open up a newspaper without either the words monopoly or monopsony being used. I think that people are switched on to this issue. Um, I think you guys are on the right track. It is one of the most important po political economy issues we face. And it feels like there's an enormous amount of energy and excitement. Uh, uh, by the way, not just from fringe lefties, but from lots and lots of people across the political spectrum mm -hmm. to, to, uh, to deal with this. Um, I'm also hopeful, uh, I'm just going to do a little plug here, because my team at Civic Ventures is debuting a new policy framework uh, in 10 days or a week through a journal called Democracy, which is sort of a wonky policy journal based in DC called Progressive Labor Standards which seeks to address this problem, not from the top down, but the bottom up. And it's an incredibly simple idea, um, which is to hold the biggest companies to the highest standard um, and to tilt the economic playing field towards small businesses and startups, not away from them as it is now. So you can imagine a scenario where the minimum wage for multinational corporations would be $25 an hour. And for medium-sized businesses, it would be 15. And for the smallest businesses, it might be 12 or 13 or something like that. And in that way, and imagine applying all labor standards in that way. So that what you're doing is you're holding the biggest companies who are most able to pay um, to the highest standard and dragging everyone up rather than our current cir circumstances where the, the biggest companies in America are largely the most exploitive um, and pernicious employers. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I think that there's a lot of there's a lot of cool stuff that can be done, and I think I think we'll make great progress in the next couple of years. I I'm personally I'm personally hopeful just because we have been here before as as a nation, um, and I say we even though I'm Canadian, but I married an American. Um, but uh, we have, we've been here before during, you know, right after the depression, we, we banded together, we elected politicians on the anti, uh, antitrust platforms and enacted, you know, legislation that, that turned the tide and which oversaw the, the creation of, you know, the, the expansion of the middle class through the, through the 40s, 60s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and, um, and ushered in a, a great wave of prosperity for many American families. And, and so I think we've been here before, and I also am hopeful because we see that right now there are lots of politicians. We've got Senator Elizabeth Warren, Cory Booker, um, Klobuchar, oh, how do you say her Klobuchar. name? Klobuchar. Um, doing some really interesting, introducing some bills along these lines. Um, so I would encourage you to, to also check out what they're doing. And we, do, we have heard that we think this might be one of the big kind of issues that is run on in the 2020 elections which we hope so. Um, so I, I also am hopeful at the, the growing groundswell of activity around these issues. So uh, I'm uh, partly depressed and partly hopeful. <laughs> so I'm with Nick. We're basically, uh, you know, you have to be realistic that these things take time and people, you know, as we've been going on this book tour, are like, so do you think your book's gonna change things? And the answer is no. Um, it takes, you know, not just sort of this book, but rather what every one of you is going to do you know, and then what things are going to happen, you know, further afield. And so, um, b but I am hopeful in the sense that even though 
you know, we all have a little grain of sand to add, you know, ultimately it turns into a sand pile. Um, you know, and uh, same thing with avalanches, and you know, it, it, it's there's no one thing that does it, right? And so it's a it's a collective effort. But I have to say that, you know, even just randomly chatting with people at airports, right? Everyone knows something's wrong. You know, um, I'm I'm a nobody. I sent my manuscript off. You know, I've read your book and a huge fan of yours. You know, you you liked it, and then Nobel Prize winners liked it. Like everyone recognizes something's wrong whether it's like the person sitting next to me at the airport chatting about sort of how his industry has gotten totally consolidated, you know, or whether it's someone else. And so I think that the good thing is like there now is, you know, mon monopoly, monopsony. You wouldn't have heard that three or four years ago. Everyone's talking about it. And now everyone's trying to fix sort of the worker uh, issues, which people have ignored for a very long time. And that's very hopeful. Um, and then, you know, we've, we've all got to like carry our little grain of sand or snowflake and hope it turns into an avalanche. And, and one last thing as well is we have six amazing community partners here that have tables out in the back. And so our hope is as well that after this, you would please go and chat with them. They're doing amazing work in the city. Um, and if you're feeling inspired and you want to figure out what is next for you in this movement, please go and chat with, with those organizations. Yeah, thank you all. A round of applause for our panel. I am thankful that we have such thinkers as these working in our city here in Seattle. So we have run quite long, but we have time for maybe two or three questions. If people have a burning question on what you should do is run up and quickly get in line. <laughs> so I see a couple here. Um, so um, ma'am, go, you go ahead. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much. This is a wonderful panel. I'm really excited to see everyone discussing these issues. Jonathan, you spoke about um, regulation in a way that seemed fairly anti-regulation. You talked about banking regulation. That was a negative outcome. And yet it seems to me that um, regulation is the only response we have uh, to breaking up the consolidation of companies. And so could you speak to that? Am I misinterpreting? Is there another answer? Uh, sure. So I'm not anti-regulation. Um, I think the, the problem is viewing regulation as a solution, it, I think it's flawed. Um, what you could distinguish between, let's say, uh, principles-based regulation and, and rules-based regulation. And people are always shocked when I tell them that Enron didn't violate any accounting standards, <laughs> right? They, they basically were using sort of, you know, SPVs and variable interest entities. So if you, you can uh, follow the rules, uh, you know, the letter of the law and violate the principles, right? And in the same way, like Dodd-Frank essentially erects 2,200 pages versus 35 pages of Glass-Steagall. What I would like are uh, intelligent principles-based regulation that, and so that's why in the, in the conclusion to the book, we start with principles first. I, what, what are the principles that we think are important? And then you go to what are the legislative and regulation uh, solutions, regulatory solutions, rather than just say, you know what, we're going to go out and write more regulation, right? Um, or create another regulator. Uh, and part of that is that there's regulatory capture too. Right? So you could create more regulators, right? I guarantee you they're going to be captured the same way that the current uh, regulatory bodies are captured. And so that's why I think it's uh, what I was trying to get across is that we need a much more thoughtful, nuanced approach. It's not sort of being anti-regulation or, or being thinking that regulation is the answer. It's trying to figure out what are the principles that are guiding us and then trying to make sure that you, know, you can get laws and regulations that do that. And often they can be quite simple, um, you know, as long as they're uh, correct. Uh, yeah, my question, um, I haven't read the book yet, so I assume you answer in your book what the myth is, the precise myth, sure. exactly what it is. <laughs> sure. 
Um, and the corresponding regulation change, slightly modification of regulation that will fix all of the problems. Maybe we need to have 10 competitors or 15 or 20, or there's a size. Um, what is the fundamental flaw if there is one? Um, and so that's, that's kind of my question. And then uh, I did have one for Nick specifically. Um, what's your evidence that, that, that people are wholly good and never act out of economic, economic man motivations? So that was my two questions. Sure. So the, the, the myth idea comes from the uh, Kalecki quote, which I found after we had written the book, but it was the same idea, which is that you know, capitalism, I think, broadly has two elements. One is essentially sort of do you own your lemonade stand or not, i.e., do we have private property or not, right? The other element of capitalism broadly is, uh, no, is there com competition? Can we get clear price signals that would then tell us, you know, how much we should supply or demand? And the, the, I think the private property is totally fine. I mean, that, that, that's been one. Um, the, the myth is essentially that we live in a very competitive marketplace that can then give us clear you know, uh, supply and demand and, and pricing. Uh, the supply is determined by a very small number of people who have, you know, can, can price with impunity. You know, you mentioned gasoline having uh, essentially, you know, uh, it's basically perfectly inelastic, but medical care is relatively inelastic, and that's completely uncompetitive in America, right? So to argue that we somehow have a free market system is a myth. Right, right. It, it doesn't exist, but what is the Oh, no, sorry, I have no problem with capitalism. I'm just saying that what we're seeing here and now in many industries, to call it capitalism, is a, it's, sort of a, it's a myth. This is not the real thing. Um, and it's a fairly provocative title, and it would be much better than having a much more boring one, which is monopolies, you know, what, what you know or what you should know and uh, why, why it's important. <laughs> so. Yeah, and I'll just answer briefly that, 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 to be clear, people are not all good. Uh, people can be selfish. They can be um, incredibly generous. People are always a mix of those things. Um, uh, but but there's 30 or 40 years of anthropological, sociological, psychological research that shows that that people are basically evolutionarily designed to be reciprocal and cooperative. Uh, it, 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 the, and and of course. There are sociopaths, and being one can give you a great advantage in some circumstances. But in general, people are people are cooperative. And with apologies to the folks who got online, I do think we only have time for one last question. We have run long tonight. Thanks. Um, I was just wondering if a, a one a one possible solution might be to try and get equality in the boardroom by putting workers um, on allowing the uh, the board to be made up of workers as well as um, just the same 13 to 15 people that sit on the boards of all the major companies, and that might be a quicker way to get to a more uh, egalitarian, equalitarian um, e equity solution. And also, um, we talk about America being for democracy, but the place where we have the least amount of democracy is in the workplace, and so m maybe having uh, a more cooperative work environment would be uh, good too. I don't know. What do you think? I, Great last question. Yeah, I can I can just quickly jump in, which is um, what you're speaking of is co is called co-determination, and Germany uh, does have this, and it also the the bill that I referenced earlier, Senator Warren has also introduced as part of her bill 
um, a essentially a, a portion of it deals with the ability for workers to elect, a, uh, I think it's 30% of board seats. Um, so that, that is something that uh, I think is really interesting uh, and I think would allow for more representation, which is certainly needed and is something that is actively being proposed. Yeah, and um, I would say for, for Puget Sound Sage, our framework is that all people should have a meaningful say in shaping their future at both the workplace and in their communities. Um, and just a few weeks ago, uh, with UFCW 21 and a number of community stakeholders, we um, had a community meeting with um, New Seasons Corporation, the CEO of New Seasons, um, and basically explained to her, you know, we love that you want to provide charity in our community. And to come to Seattle, we also want you to know that the Seattle standard is that people here have a meaningful say in what their community looks like. And so we want you to hear what community has to say. And I want to say that in Seattle, we have that. We have a lot of opportunities for you to have a meaningful say in how your community is shaped. Um, and in particular, our focus is making sure that low-wage workers and people of color sit at those tables. So there's a lot of programming that's happening um, both at Puget Sound Sage as it relates to land use, good jobs, affordable housing. And I want to kick it over to Rachel to talk about her workers. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, I want to just say I think it is a good policy idea. And, and one of the things that I've been thinking about is um, stock options for workers, which uh, I think sounds like a good idea, but I actually don't even know. I don't know if it's enough. Because if you're a, a low-wage worker, sort of having a couple hundred dollars of stock options is just like an illusory thing that's get you know, the... It doesn't, it's not meaningful wealth development. Um, it but, doesn't work. And it, right, and it doesn't work. So, but if you had major board representation, you could actually think about how you would build wealth for workers through a corporation. Um, but yeah, but I mean, again, Fair Work Center and Working Washington, uh, two Seattle-based workers' rights organizations that do a lot of policy, uh, would do organizing policy work and provide legal services to low-wage workers um, and trying to think about how to rebalance this. Great. Well, fantastic. If there's no more comments, that's actually also a great segue to visit some of those same partner organizations out there. Myth of Capitalism is available for sale. The authors will be signing right over here. Thank you all so much for coming. <laughs>